The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So it's a little bit uh, pathetic um, to, to admit, I'm glad my mom is not in here this morning, but I pretty much did, reading was my least favorite thing to do growing up. I might have already told you guys this before. My mom taught English at the high school that I went to for 28 years. She was head of the English department, retired from there, and I just, that, that apple, I fell far from the tree. I just did not like reading. Her email was like Britlit at um, sc.rr.com for like British literature. She just loved it, and I just didn't. I just did not enjoy reading. I'm not sure how many books I actually read in high school. Um, I did a lot of spark notes. Um, I don't know if you guys remember back to elementary school, if you guys had accelerated reader and you had to like get so many points. I took to get like pizza and get special things. I took the Harry Potter accelerator reader for the Sorcerer's Stone, the first one, uh, just purely based on watching the movie, just because I needed more points. So it's like, I didn't read that book, but I got good accelerator reader points. I got 90, 90 out of 100. So there's only one question that wasn't in the movie. So I lucked out on that. But, but reading was just not something I enjoyed doing. I went to Furman. I majored in math. I loved math, but really I didn't want to write papers. I didn't want to read books. But the Lord saved me in 2010, uh, 2011. I just celebrated this past Tuesday uh, my baptism 13 years ago. And everything changed for me with reading, mostly because of this book, because of needing to know what is true and right. I began to ask myself, how am I going to know anything? How am I going to learn anything? How am I going to change? I started to recognize my heart needed to be changed. Well, was I just going to sit there and just kind of wait and just wait for my heart to change until it came? I needed to kind of learn to read. And it's almost pathetic to say as a you know, sophomore, junior at Furman, I needed to teach myself to read. Some of the things I'm going to talk about this morning, they may seem totally obvious to you. You may totally get it. You may have gotten it for all of your life but they were not abundantly obvious to me. I'm going to start back where Zach closed us last week with verse 13 and just want to notice the very first word, therefore. I've had to learn things like this word, like a word, therefore, signals a transition. Something came before it, therefore, and then certain things come after it. You need to understand what comes before to understand what comes after. Essentially, the, the second half of Zach's sermon last week, and then my sermon this morning, is essentially the application for the first half of Zach's sermon and then Trevor's two previous sermons. All of this groundwork that's laid in verses 1 through 12, we then get a therefore, and then we're told what we are to do about it. So I want to give us a little bit of a running preview or a little bit of a running kind of commentary on what the first 12 verses said, since I'm assuming some of you in here missed a week or haven't been here with us or this is your first time with us. So Peter opens. We're going to be in 1 Peter. It's at the end of our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, he opens his letter in verses 1 and 2 and acknowledging that he's writing to a group of Christians who were exiled. They are scattered from home, they are persecuted, they're discriminated against, they don't have the comfort of their own home, their own place. Trevor talked about how this group is homeless, but they are not hopeless. Why are they not hopeless? Because they are elect 
exiles who the triune God is continuing to care for. It's what verse 2 highlights. Verses 3 through 9, the hope these exiles have is the eternal inheritance they receive from God. Verse 4, based on the resurrection of Jesus that Peter talks about in verse 3. So they rejoice, but only for a time they are tested and grieved by various trials. And these trials are opportunities for their hope to be refined, for their trust in God to grow. A genuine tested faith is more valuable than gold, is what Peter talks about. And the outcome of this tested faith is salvation. And then verses 10 through 12, Zach highlighted last week, that the Old Testament prophets have spoken about salvation coming through Christ's sufferings. We might summarize uh, these first 12 verses, it'll be on the screen, that through Christ, an eternal inheritance and salvation have come to believers despite great trials. So there's not really a ton of like, go do this, go act this way. It's just kind of this truth that the people, that Peter's audience is to rest in, that through Christ, an eternal inheritance and salvation through an eternal inheritance and salvation, have come to believers despite great trials. And then the word comes, verse 13. Therefore, because of this inheritance and salvation, because you were elect exiles, because you were cared for and chosen by the triune God, because you were saved by the sufferings of Christ, do three things. Three things is kind of what we're going to cover in verses 13 through 21. But one point of reference is as we consider our lives and as we think about what we are to do in response to Christ saving us, God saving us, I want us to remember this statement that what God has done for us in Christ is always the basis for how we should live our lives. What God has done for us in Christ is always the basis for how we should live our lives. To switch the order would be dangerous. It would lead to a works-based righteousness. We are to see our actions as a response to Christ's love and suffering, to God's grace and power. So in learning to read and teaching myself to read 12, 13 years ago, I needed to learn about these important transition words like therefore And then one other thing to to learn is just something basic like an imperative or a command. So I said we're going to do three things. In the the next, from verse 13 to the close of the chapter, I'm going through verse 21. Trevor will pick up verse 22. There's four commands. There's four imperatives, things that we are to do. Zach covered one of them last week, and I'm going to reiterate it here in just a minute. The, the, in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace. I'm going to cover two more, and then Trevor's going to cover the last one. But when we read an imperative, we read a command, it is something for us to do, something to go and apply. So let's read verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, these almost subordinate commandments that Zach mentioned last week, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing, we're going to kind of hit three things that we are to do because of God's saving work. The first one, because of God's saving work, the imperative or the command, is to set your hope fully on Christ coming. So how does Peter encourage his audience to do this? He gives two 
participles, these kind of ing words that appear at the beginning of verse 13, these two kind of subordinate commandments. Zach covered it really well last week. The first one, preparing your minds for action, literally girding up the loins of your minds. I think about, uh, you know, he, he talks about kind of tucking in your tunic, getting your body ready for action. I think about something like if you were to mow the lawn, you prepare yourself in a certain way. If you're coming to church on a Sunday morning, you prepare yourself in a certain way. If, I, if you were going backpacking or you were going running, you prepare yourself in a certain way. You have to organize yourself. You have to get the right attire on. Similarly, we need a level of preparation and discipline to have our hope fully on Jesus. You don't just wake up one day and all of your hope is completely on Jesus and nothing else. The most mature pastors, the greatest missionaries, the most Christ-like men, the most godly women you know, didn't just wake up one day and they were exactly that way. Now, Christ does save and transform us and give us a new heart, but we also mature. We are to grow into maturity. They prepare themselves. They use intentionality to see growth. The second one he mentions in verse 13, being sober-minded. Zach encourages us, we don't want to be dull to the greatness and majesty of God. We don't want to be lulled into a love for the world. We want to love Christ above all. So, having prepared a prepared and single-minded focus on the glory of God, only then will you be able to have your hope on the grace coming at the second return of Christ. Let's read verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So first, we talked about because of God's saving work, set your hope fully on Christ's coming. Second, because of God's saving work, be holy. Pursue holiness. The main emphasis is on verse 15, be holy, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But jumping back to verse 14, Peter starts off as obedient children. Now, I don't know how many of you out there are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or ever around kids. Who doesn't love an obedient child? Who doesn't love an obedient child? What, what parent out there, aunt, uncle, grandparent, you just give a nice inst- instruction, would you please sit in your seat? And the kid just gets over there, just sits in their seat quietly, just sits calmly. That's so nice. That's such an enjoyable child to be around. It's much harder when they are not obedient, when they don't do as they ask. If you're serving in the nursery, if you're babysitting, if you're grandparent, aunt, an uncle, it is nice to be around obedient children. It is a breath of fresh air. It is difficult to be around disobedient children. In order to be holy, Peter tells us we are to be like obedient children. We are to obey our heavenly Father. We are ones who stay far away from the passions of our former ignorance because of what God has done. But how easy is it for us to not be obedient children? Read a command in Scripture. Think about this is probably how I should apply the Scripture to my life and culture and context. And then we don't go do that. We do the opposite or we keep doing the same thing we've been doing. But apart from Christ, apart from verses 1 through 12... 
we cannot be obedient. We simply pursue our own passions, much as a child does with no direction or no teaching. In Christ, though, we are now free to stay far away from those things that have enslaved us. Many of us in here, we, we struggle with holiness. We struggle with godliness. We struggle with maturity in Christ. Maybe we have an addiction to pornography. Maybe we have a substance abuse problem. Maybe we struggle to care for your spouse, to lay down your life for the sake of him or her. Maybe we struggle caring for our children. Maybe selfishness just wells up inside of us. And we just care so much more about ourselves than we do about anyone else. Peter is encouraging us to pursue holiness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, so just a few pages over. You don't need to flip it, I'll, I'll read it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter's talking about these false prophets that are around. And he says, these false prophets promise freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes us, whatever overcomes you, whatever dulls you, whatever passions of the flesh you run after, to those things you are enslaved. And it's probably pretty easy if we were to just sit here quietly for a minute or two and just think about what enslaves me. What has a hold on me? What keeps me from setting my hope fully on Christ's coming? We'd probably be able to think about some things. You cannot will yourself to be godlier. Instead of embracing the passions that you have embraced, verses 15 and 16 encourages us to be holy, but why? The motivation is key. We are to be holy because God is. Is holy. Because the one who called you is holy. Look to Christ, gaze upon Christ, behold more of Christ, spend more time with Him. I love the all encompassing nature of verse 13 and verse 15, these kind of two commands, these two imperatives that we've looked at. Verse 13 set your hope fully on the grace that is coming. Not a little bit, not halfway. Not get 90% of the way there and then you're good. Set your hope fully on Christ's return. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in a little bit of your conduct, in some of your conduct. No, you also be holy in all of your conduct. The motivation for this holiness is not earning God's love, but is God's holiness, is God's care, is God's redeeming power to bring us into his family. I've shared with you guys before at different times, um, Jonathan Edwards, a famous pastor, theologian from a few hundred years ago, um, had these resolutions that were just super, super helpful that he would just write out when he had clear mind, clear thoughts of resolve to do that which I shall wish I should do um, if I was to come to the end of my life today. Resolve to live the next hour as if it was my last. He makes these resolutions knowing I, I have to give all of my life for Christ. In many ways, that's been convicting for me. I've taken time over the last couple of weeks, even thinking in these, in, in these verses, to write out some, 
some of my own resolutions, just on my computer of things that I want to run after, things I need to, when I get in the heat of the moment, when the passions of the flesh are trying to take over, I'm going to go back and read this document. These are the things that I want to commit myself to because we want to prepare our minds for actions. We want to be holy as God is holy. So first, because of God's saving work, set your hope fully on Christ. Second, because of God's saving work, be holy. Let's look at the third one, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The third commandment, the third imperative, because of God's saving work, because of God's saving work, conduct yourselves with fear. Verse 17 starts off with this word. Again, I'm teaching myself to read all of this time. If and if you are saved, if you call on God as Father, if you are born again, if you are a disciple of Christ, have fear. Because our works will be judged by God. He judges impartially. He treats all people equally in regard to sin. The judgment means Peter's audience is to have a certain level of fear. Be afraid. That doesn't seem like the most comforting words. You know, I I thought of God, you know, in many ways for me growing up, kind of pre-Christ. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. God is a God of gentleness and kindness. The idea of judgment and fear just doesn't really sound like the Jesus I know. So what is this fear? So some of you out there uh, love scary movies. I think even a couple of our pastors maybe have done a podcast on scary movies. Some of you just love scary movies. I despise scary movies. I've seen one scary movie. It was in ninth grade, and it was to impress a girl. That was all, the only reason I went. I was just trying to impress this girl. I don't know if it worked. Probably didn't. But I've not seen a scary movie since then. I'm not... I don't like how it makes me feel. I don't like the fear that it develops. But in reading this passage, it kind of made me think, are we, are we to fear God, kind of like you, the fear that you develop when you're watching a scary movie? I have a quote on the screen from Tom Schreiner, a commentator he's written on, on 1 Peter. He asked the question, did Peter mean that believers should live reverently or in terror? Most commentators opt for the former, since the confidence believers have in Christ seems to be at odds with the idea of living in a terrified state. So that he's saying people favor living reverently instead of in terror. Abject terror certainly does not fit with the joy and boldness of the Christian life. Reverence, however, can be watered down so that it becomes rather insipid. Peter contemplated the final judgment where believers will be assessed by their works and heaven and hell will be at stake. There is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. And he goes on to give an illustration of uh, just a driver of a car. 
there's kind of a good terrified state that we should be in when we are driving a vehicle. I get terrified. Some of you out there are probably 15, 16, 17. I have the idea of 15, 16, 17-year-olds driving around. I live near Riverside High School. It's like, man, I, I need my, I got to be eyes up watching who's driving where. Because it's like, we're just driving these, you know, murdering vehicles. Or they have the capabilities. So if you drive around on 85, you're going to see the screen. There's always going to be 1,000 car wreck deaths every year in South Carolina. It's heartbreaking. But there's kind of fear that we should have that keeps us from doing something foolish. My friends driving in high school, we did a lot of foolish things. It was like, that's not how you should drive a car. I get made fun of. I drive a little bit like a, probably an older person. Um, I drive a little slower. But it's, I, I'm just living with a little bit of fear of what is to come. I don't want to do something foolish. Or I want to prevent myself from being impacted by somebody else doing something foolish. So is the fear that Peter encourages us towards more like reverence or more like terror? I would argue it's kind of both. I think that's what Tom Schreiner's saying. It's not terror like a scary movie, but it is terror like an eternal God who will judge everything you have said and done in your entire life. The fear that we are to have is a confident, reverent fear. But thankfully, it's kind of a a, a both-and aspect. We know God will judge. That means we live in a certain way. But we also know God is gracious and loving. And that means we live in a certain way. I have another small quote from Tom Schreiner where he's kind of making this, this tension clear. What is remarkable here is that God's tenderness and love as Father is mingled with his judgment and the fear that should mark Christians in this world. We as followers of Christ should have a fear knowing God is going to judge, but we also have a confidence knowing that God's grace is sufficient. But if you are not in Christ, you should fear. You should only fear because you will come to a day where all will be judged. Verse 18 and 19, why do we fear? Because God is the judge. Because the price has been paid for our sins, we have been redeemed if we confess and have faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. We fear because of what God has done for us and the judgment that is to come. Every one of our sins deserves the wrath of a holy God. Just one sin deserves the wrath of a holy God. The redemption Peter speaks of is not with payment of money, but by the ultimate payment. He uses the language, the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb without spot or blemish. Another reading kind of technique, foreshadowing coming when we were back in Exodus and we were reading about the Passover When Peter's coming and using this language, he's like, think back to the unblemished lamb that had to be sacrificed so that the firstborn would not be killed, so that God would pass over in judgment. A sacrifice had to be made, and Christ is that sacrifice. Verse 20, Jesus' saving work on the cross is not an afterthought. It's not a second-rate plan because we failed. It's not like God said kind of after Genesis 3, oh shoot, 
what am I going to do now? Um, you guys screwed it up. Adam and Eve, all your descendants, everything's messed up. I don't know what to do now. The plan has always been Jesus. But Jesus was only made manifest in the last times. In the already and not yet. He came for the elect exiles, for believers, for you and for me. And then verse 21, we are only believers in God through Jesus. Acts 4.12, salvation is in no other name by which we can be saved other than Christ. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to a relationship with the triune God is through Jesus Christ. There's no way apart from the redeeming work of the one true Lamb of God. God raised Jesus so that our hope and our faith would be in Christ. Again, I would say if you are not a believer, if your life has not been submitted to the Lordship of Christ. This is not just a, a mental ascension of, oh yeah, I know God is up there. If your life has not been submitted to him, if your heart has not been changed, recognize that you will be judged. You should fear God's judgment. But we're not left in fear. There is a great hope for every single person that is hearing my voice right now. And the hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus sacrificed on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And if we are in Christ, you have been made right by Jesus. Now live in light of that. Live in light of the redeemed state that we have. I want to cover just kind of what we've hit on over these last few minutes I want to run through those three again. Because of God's saving work, we are to hope in Jesus and in his return. Set your hope fully on Christ's coming. And this is life-changing. Honestly, I've just been meditating on this over the last few days. If I could just wake up every day and just think about Christ is coming back. Christ is returning. Now what? Now what should I do? Now how should I live? Now how should I invest in my kids? Now how hard should I work and show uh, good diligence for my boss and for my coworkers? How quickly should I try to share the gospel with my coworkers and my neighbors? Set your hope fully on Christ's coming. Let that change us. Second, take holiness seriously. We are to be holy. Why are we to be holy? Because God is. Is holy. And back in, the, in, in verse 13, um, Peter talks about preparing our minds for action. So we're to prepare our minds so that our hope is fully on Christ's return. We're to prepare our minds so that we can be holy. I think about, you know, if, you have, if you're not a runner out there, you can't just go out tomorrow and run a marathon. You would be in such great pain, I doubt you could even get to 26 miles. You have to prepare yourself. You have to organize yourself. You have to set yourself up for success. And same for us. We want to be holy. How are we going to be holy? Spending more time with Christ. Spending more time in his word. Spending more time in prayer. Getting around people who are godlier than us and asking questions. Inviting a mentor in. 
Letting someone speak into our lives. And third, we are to fear God. We are to conduct ourselves with fear. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he is also the judge that comes with a scepter to judge the living and the dead. And I pray that that would motivate our living. I pray that that would change our hearts and let us live in response to who Christ is. If you have any questions, if you would like to talk about any of this after the service, I'm going to be outside, would love to interact with you. If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, what it means to submit our lives to him. If you're a member at Ridgewood and you would just like to pray, to, to seek to grow in holiness, I would love to pray with you and talk with you. I know Trevor would love to do the same. He'll be in the, in the lobby. As we turn now, we're going to think about communion We've been partaking of communion every week as an opportunity to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. What we've just talked about, Christ's precious blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. We're going to have four stations. There'll be two up front and and two in the middle. Uh, If when you're, you're ready to come and partake, if you'll go on kind of the outside on the walls and kind of Come alongside, you'll, you'll kind of line up, prepare, uh, and grab the elements. And then as you return to your seat, would encourage you to, to stay standing. We're going to be singing as we have the elements. Hold on to your elements. Once you get back to your seat, we will take them all together once we are done with our next song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning, knowing that you have offered salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and that just changes everything. Lord, I pray that we would be able to live in light of that salvation. If there are any in here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would be able to take Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that they would see and behold who you are. They would pass on these elements up here in front that are just but a a taste of the true and beautiful gospel of what Christ has done for them. We pray that you would grant faith and grant regeneration. Lord, for those of us in the room who are walking with Christ, I pray that you would refresh us. Some of us in here, no doubt, are struggling to walk in holiness. Lord, we need the power of your spirit to work in us. And Lord, we do pray you would bring encouragement through your word, bring encouragement through other brothers and sisters around us. Lord, help us to have a healthy fear of you, a confidence, a reverence, and yet a terror knowing that you are the judge. You are outside of all time and space. You have created everything. You rule over everything. Lord, help us to worship you. Help our hearts be submitted to you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Lord, I pray you would use this time as we partake of the supper to do a mighty work in us, to encourage us, to remind us of the beauty of the gospel, to help us think on our baptism. Lord, that we are yours and yours alone. We love you so much.